Right, let's go Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word uh, for a number of really important things. But the, the best of all the important things, the, the most important of all the important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him filtered through the lens and made sense of by knowing him, defined by knowing him, uh, evaluated and prioritized by knowing him. And so if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, um, then putting your nose into the scriptures, pursuing him there is the most valuable thing you can be doing. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one. Uh, I'll call it one of the best parts of my day. Um, It's about to get a lot better though, because one of my kids is actually going to be in that tank in a little bit. Um, So... uh, We are now in our fourth week of a series that we're calling Distinct Church. Uh, And I always try to make very, very careful to to pronounce the C in that word because my Texas accent doesn't do that well. Distinct Church. And if you haven't been here, here's the general idea. Um, I'm convinced that the local church is filled with people and with pictures and with a purpose that intentionally flow against the stream of the prevailing systems and worldviews that we find ourselves surrounded by. All right, that's the general idea. All right, uh, a, a countercultural distinctiveness that's, that, that stands out as beautiful and as otherworldly, as unique, all those things. But those distinctions are not birthed out of any kind of result. or They're not, they're not some attempt to, to, to try to rebel against the winds of change. All right? They're not uh, some effort to be anti-progressive. That would be to allow the culture around us to, to be the driving def- kind of factor in defining who we are. We don't play that game. That's not what we're about. No, the distinctions that, that the local church are birthed out of come first and foremost out of a position change that God affects upon his people, works upon his people, that then affects every other thing about who we are and what we value and pursue. All right? It's a position change. He has moved us from one place to another. It changes everything about what we chase after. It changes everything about what we uh, would build our lives around and our, build our ambitions around. And so what is that position change? Well, it's that sinners who rightly deserve the righteous wrath of God are instead rescued out of that wrath by the grace of God and are forever reconciled to him in glorified relationship. That's the position change. Christianity, and and by Christianity, I mean biblically defined Christianity. So not the big hair televangelists and not the loosely defined evangelical voting block and certainly not the you know, the musings, incoherent Facebook theology of your twice-a-year church-going friends. No, biblically defined Christianity is unlike any faith system or philosophy that has ever existed on the planet. Completely different. And, and the, the key difference is that all of those other systems and philosophies revolve around you doing whatever you have the power to do to fix the problem. 
You're going to go do this, and you're going to go do that, and you're going to get the, the issue resolved. And so you tow whatever the moral line happens to be, and you go and make your sacrifice either uh, for some sort of personal appeasement or some kind of corporate appeasement. And there's usually some plan in there to cleanse yourself of bad actions or bad attitudes standing in the way of your enlightenment and or exaltation. I mean, that's how the world works, Right? But every single ounce of it, every bit of it, all depends on you fixing you. But Christianity runs in the opposite direction. It doesn't teach that at all. No, no, the Bible teaches that we have neither the ability nor even the correct desire to fix ourselves. It teaches that as an act of cosmic charity, God reaches down and plucks up those who are spiritually dead and brings them to spiritual life. There is, a, there is a moral line to toe. That is, that is true. But the standard of that line is perfection. How are you doing on that one? <laughs> Last I checked, I'm, I'm not able to deliver on perfection. And so Jesus steps in and does perfection for me. He lives sinlessly on our behalf and, and we're told clothes us in his own perfect righteousness. There is a sacrifice to be made. That, that is true. Yeah, There's a reason why all the other faith systems of the world have that kind of in their DNA. It's because the sacrifice needs to be made. But that sacrifice must be flawless. And I don't have a flawless thing to give. Everything about who I am is already stained by my sin. So Jesus steps onto the scene and he lays down his own life as a sacrifice to make the payment for sin that we owe. And because he's not stained by our sin, his sacrifice can be perfect in our place. And there's certainly a long list of sin-broken attitudes and actions in me that must be cleansed. You know me for two seconds, you know that's true. Uh, But no amount of self-discipline can ever wash me clean. I don't have that. Even in my most disciplined moments, the fountain of my heart is still spewing dirty water. So Jesus gives us a new heart. And he washes us clean, we're told, by his blood. The fundamental difference between Christianity and every other faith system and philosophy that has ever existed is that rather than us doing something to close the gap between ourselves and whatever the divine happens to be, in Christianity, God works upon his people to bring them to himself. Fundamentally distinct. He changes our position before him by no work of our own, by no merit of our own. He turns sinners into saints, works of uh, uh, objects of wrath into objects of his grace, right? Of his mercy. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at not only the position change, but also a couple of things that this position change uh, begins to affect upon us. And so we we looked at how it changes our priorities as his people. We, We chase after different things now. Before we knew Jesus, we chased after certain things, but now knowing Jesus, we chase after different things. Uh, The things that used to define us, the things that used to be badges of honor for us, they fall off of the pedestal the moment we put Jesus in his rightful place on top of the pedestal. We looked at how the gospel changes our posture towards those who don't know Jesus yet. That's what we looked at last week. We're not in the business of selling ourselves to anybody. We don't have to play that game. We're not trying to get anybody to be impressed with our church. Have you seen us? 
We want people to be impressed with what Jesus has done on their behalf through the cross. And yeah, that's a stumbling block to people, and that's folly to people, but that's his plan. And you either have eyes to see it or you don't. And so other things are minimized. Now this week and next week, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of ways that the Christian's change of position before God affects some pictures that we regularly show to each other as a local body of believers called a church. Ways that we illustrate that position change as a way of reminding each other of what God has seen fit to do. And the first of those pictures is one you're pretty familiar with, or I hope you are, baptism. It's been my experience, I don't know about you, but it's been my experience at least, uh, that there are a lot of people who have a lot of confusion uh, when it comes to things like baptism. The who, what, the where, and the how are all weird questions to them, uh, and people have lots of opinions, and they're slapping those opinions together. But the longer I've been pastoring, the more I've come to the realization uh, that that confusion typically, not in every case, but typically isn't because people have done a lot of study about the subject and they've come to differing conclusions about the thing. Usually it's because churches don't prioritize clearly teaching about baptism. That's usually the case. And when you throw in the modern cultural reality that a lot of people have spent a lot of time in a lot of different churches, all practicing baptism in different ways, well, it means that their understanding of baptism is usually a bunch of logically disparate ideas all cobbled together into a mess. Just what I've seen. So what is baptism then? Well, to start answering that, I think first of all, you have to pay very, very careful attention to what it's not. I hope you noticed this a moment ago. Really hope you caught this. But at no point in my previous explanation of the gospel did I ever mention baptism. Like, we saw that, right? And rightly so. The the reason for that is because baptism is not a part of the equation that God uses to save someone. Period. When God calls people out of darkness and into the light, when people repent of their sins and they call on the Lord uh, uh, to save them and they repent and believe, baptism isn't involved in that equation, which I'm sure is a little bit of a paradigm-shaking statement for some people. I'm sure it probably is. A lot of people have either been taught or maybe just simply assumed, I guess, that baptism was some hoop that people were supposed to jump through in order to make God happy with them. In order for God to be pleased with them. And for some, that assumption is kind of, that assumption that baptism is kind of like the physical action that God uses to actually wash you clean from sin. And for others, uh, it's an assumption that baptism is some kind of covenantal sign that finally allows you into the, the gates of the kingdom, of God's kingdom. But mostly, I've found, people are just twisting the spiritual knobs that they think they're supposed to twist in order to do the things that they think they're supposed to do. Is that your story? I find it's a lot of people's story. Oh, my life is still a mess right now, and I haven't tried this spiritual action yet, so let's jump in the giant bathtub. Hopefully it's warm, and that may, that maybe that'll fix all my problems. There are a whole lot of people in this world, a lot of people who have, a, have baptism somewhere in their story, without really knowing why, without having even a clue. They just did the thing they were supposed to do. It was an empty spiritual action in a season where they thought they needed to do all the spiritual actions in front of them, whether they understood that spiritual action or not. 
but that's not the way that the Bible understands baptism. Not even close. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is in the middle of building a logical argument for the gospel. I love the book of Romans because it's just one long take you from not believing that there's a God into this is why the you ought to like join a local church. It's just, I love the book of Romans, right? It's just one long logical argument. And, and so he's kind of building this logical argument and chapter six is kind of in the middle of that. And so he spends a couple of chapters talking about the position change that we've been talking about all this morning. He, he gives it different terminology, talks about being uh, under uh, the headship of Adam versus under the headship of Christ, but the same concept. We're on a different team now. He's changed our position. And he makes the point, Paul does, in, in kind of at the end of chapter 5, he's talking about the law, and he's talking about what happens when the law of God is held up against, as, a, as a framework against a sinful people, that sinful people now understand what the law is and how they fall short of the law. And, and it's kind of like just a giant mess. It reveals just how badly we need a Savior. All right? And so he makes the point, though, that the grace of Jesus is celebrated and is seen as more glorious and, and wonderful when the separation between man and God is shown to be as severe as it, as it is because the law came into the picture. That because that God ultimately gave the law so that we now know how badly and how desperately we needed him and in Jesus great that he came. And so... Paul's Roman audience, he anticipates their next question. Uh, he's building this logical argument. He knows where they're going to go with that news. And so the next logical question is about whether or not they should make the pile of sin as big as possible so that Jesus' grace pile is even bigger. I mean, why not go off and sin all that we can so that Jesus has something awesome to redeem? And in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul answers that question. But he does so in a way that will directly affect how we view baptism. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Anticipating their question, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we build the pile even bigger? Verse 2, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, so, even though we can talk correctly and at length about the gospel uh, and, and, and about how God is saving people and how he's calling them uh, to himself and to his kingdom and reconciling himself to them, uh, even though we can talk about following Jesus for hours and hours on end without ever talking about baptism, 
Here in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses baptism as a picture of a brand new reality that exists in every single Christian. He's answering a question. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Paul goes, no! Of course not! May it never be is the way the Greek kind of reads. Absolutely not! What are you thinking? Okay, but why not? Oh, because we're supposed to be dead to our sin. Don't you remember what happened when you were baptized? Now Paul is clearly talking about indwelling sin and our lifelong fight against indwelling sin. But he just, just kind of casually drops baptism as the perfect illustration of a reality that we're all supposed to know. That we're all supposed to assume tells us a couple of things about baptism that we probably need to, to learn this morning. One, Paul assumes that everyone in the Roman church had been baptized. He, he assumes that everybody's got that in their story somewhere. Don't, don't, you remember, don't you remember what happened when you were baptized? Don't you remember what that picture was? It wasn't, it wasn't some story that only a, a handful of people in the Roman church had in their back pocket. That wouldn't have helped them at all. It was common to all believers in Rome. But the second thing we can learn is bigger. It tells us that the purpose of baptism was to point to a far deeper, harder to picture spiritual reality that's apparently pretty important for God's people to remember from time to time. So, so what is that picture? It's that those who have placed their faith in Jesus, have been united to him in his death. But just as much, also united to him in his resurrection life. Oh, but Steve, that, like, I mean, that, that feels like such a hard concept to wrap my head around. How, how does that even work? You, you want me to be honest? Sometimes I have a really smart sounding answer. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I, I feel like I can explain that well. And then sometimes... I don't feel like I can explain that very well. And I think that's precisely why Jesus has given us and even commanded us this simple picture. Because it is a big reality. So baptism serves as a picture that illustrates and reminds us of what it is that he has done for us and how that changes everything. Paul's unpacking a massive truth to the Roman church. He goes, hey, hey guys, hey, hey, do you remember when you were baptized? You want to know why I can trust that you're not going to run off into the deep end with sin? It's because you've died to your old self and you've been born again to a, as a new creation in Christ. That's why I can trust that. And this is why, as, as Baptists, we're so insistent about dunking new Christians in the water. Um, I love my Presbyterian friends. I, I, can, I can brew a pot of coffee and we can sit and talk theology all day long. It'd be a good day for me. All right? uh, I, I could also stand here in this moment and make the academic point about how every single time you see the word baptism in the Bible, it's translating the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to immerse. But that's the academic point. I can lay the academic point aside for a moment and we can just talk about the story that's being told. Um, See, at the end of the day, the, the reason why we dunk you is because it looks like an execution. 
<laughs> Steve is so funny. No, no. We like that. It's not a coincidence. It's telling a specific story about who you now are. In baptism, you are painting a picture of dying to yourself. And sprinkling, folks, gets that picture wrong. It's not telling the same story, is it? The reality that you have died to your old self, died to your past sin, died to your past patterns of life, died to your old habits, died to your old worldviews, died to any self-exalted claims on God's throne. But baptism isn't just merely a picture of being united in Jesus' death. If that were the case, we'd hold you under until the bubbles stopped. We also raise you back up again because baptism is just as much a picture of being raised to walk in the newness of a life that is now and forever defined by and empowered by Jesus. Forever sustained by the one who will one day take you home to be with him forever exactly like he promised. Church, the reason why Jesus commanded baptism is not because he's the kind of God who likes making his people jump through hoops. That's not what he does. No, baptism is a beautiful gift that he has given to us that is somehow simultaneously a grand declaration of who you now are and, and a gentle reminder that of, of what he has done and what he has promised to, continu- to continue doing. It's this grand statement. And uh, hey, do you remember when that happened kind of thing? And so the way we like to articulate that idea around here is to say that baptism is a story told. It's not, it's not super creative, but it's just, it's just the truth. Baptism is a story told. But, but who is that story being told to? Well, from my vantage point, I can see at least three distinct audiences. And the first audience is to yourself. To yourself. That's why Paul brings it up here in Romans chapter 6 as as a marker of your new identity. By no means, he says, don't you remember your baptism? He's reminding them of of a moment where things made a little more sense than they do it for them right now. It's like, no, 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 don't don't you remember what you put your trust in? Don't you remember who Jesus now declares you to be? You remember that moment? Follower of Jesus, the times when you're struggling... On the days where your indwelling sin is just kind of kicking your tail. On the days when you're reeling spiritually, you're not sure which way to turn, which way is up, which way is down. Paul calls on you in that specific moment to remember the picture of your baptism. There's purpose in that picture. To to look back on and begin to remind yourself of what Jesus has already accomplished for you. In his goodness to you. Church, he gave you a simple picture. A picture that hopefully is burned deeply into the core of who you are and you'll never forget. It's a reminder for your benefit. And this is another reason why why Baptists uh, are so dogged about making sure that baptism only ever happens after someone has actually trusted Jesus. It's because Paul's command here, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Like baptism as an empty spiritual action is not just worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's actually damaging. 
Because whatever you're remembering in that moment is something other than the gospel. It's something other than what Jesus has done for you. It's a, it's a confidence in yourself. and It's more spiritual knob twisting instead of Jesus. But for those who have actually placed their faith in Jesus, placed their trust in him, baptism is a God-given picture of his faithfulness. Are you weak? Yeah, yeah, you're really weak. Are you a mess sometimes? Yeah, you're a giant mess, but he is good. Your knob twisting can't, can't fix you. But for those who have placed their trust in Jesus, he has already fixed you. It's on the days when you're fighting against your old self that you can confidently say, no, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am buried with him in baptism and I will be raised with him in everlasting life. Baptism is a story told. First and foremost to yourself. But you are not the only audience. The second audience are your friends and family. Listen, if Jesus has truly changed someone, there, there are some folks who need to know that, right? Like that's just the truth. It's, it's not some, your faith is personal, but it is not private. All right? So there are some people who need to know. And so eternity shaping news cannot remain hidden. It deserves to be proclaimed. But here's where it gets complicated. There are some people in the friends and family category who are going to be really, really excited for that new believer. Like, super excited, because they love Jesus too. And they think following him is a great way to do life. And they're going to be there to encourage that person, and celebrate with that person, and yeah, sometimes correct that person, but they're there rooting them on and spurring them on. But there are also some people in the friends and family category who are not so excited about it. And they are of the opinion that following Jesus is a waste of your time. Because they don't love Jesus like you love Jesus. And they may even try to stand in the way of things like baptism. See it as a mistake. But those people need to see what Jesus does in someone's life. And that he is worthy of a greater allegiance. He's a far more satisfying savior in pursuit. Baptism is a story told to yourself. Baptism is a story told to friends and family. But there's a third audience for the story of baptism. And I, it's been my experience that it's usually the most overlooked audience. The third audience is a person's new church family. God gives every believer a, a family, b brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them grow in, into maturity and to equip them for the work of ministry, to walk alongside them, to encourage them, to admonish them, to serve them, and to be served by them. All the good things that good churches do. Are there bad churches out there? Absolutely. I've seen a few. But good churches, man, they change people. And there's a reason a very, very real reason why we baptize people in a church service in front of a big crowd of people instead of slipping out into some quiet spot with just a small group of close friends and family. That's because the local church plays a key role in helping a new believer walk and grow. It's not some weird religious entertainment for the Christian crowd. 
Though the church is witnessing in that moment the admittance of a new believer into the family. There's a spiritual reality in that moment. We are collectively committing in that moment to hold up the church's end of a cosmic disciple-making responsibility. The one being baptized is being baptized into the local church. So maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Or, or, well, let me talk to the ones who are first. Maybe, maybe you are a follower of Jesus. But for whatever reason, whatever reason, yet you just never been obedient to his command to be baptized before. Listen, man, it's time to be obedient to him. Not, not because your salvation is dependent upon baptism, not because it's incomplete without the picture of baptism, but because your king has commanded it for your own good. Like, what are you doing? Let's, let's not act like his is only one opinion in a larger discussion. He's giving it to you for your good. You're missing out on a beautiful picture that he's seen fit to give to you. The longer I've been following Jesus, the more I've come to learn the truth that there's far more blessing in his gifts than anything that I might ever risk losing by walking in obedience. Always. I've never once been on the backside of finally listening to Jesus and going, man, I made the, the wrong choice. Either Jesus is smarter than us or he's not. And the Bible seems to consistently paint the picture that he actually wants a better good for you than, he even wants, than you even want for yourself. And so trust him. Let's, let's talk after we're, we're done here. I'd love to fill this tank up again in a few weeks. I want to sit down and talk to you about what baptism is and why that's important and why we ought to take that step. And I don't have to rush into it, but dragging our feet ain't good either. Let's go. What, about, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How, how can you respond? I'd love nothing more this morning than for you to meet Jesus. It really would be the best part of my week. So hear me clearly. You, you don't need to be baptized. At least not yet. You don't need baptism. You don't need any other religious action, whatever you think the spiritual knobs are. Those things are worse than worthless without Jesus. But with Jesus, woo, he uses them. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. How does he do that? Well, Jesus died and was raised again from the dead. The true form that the baptism picture has always been meant to shadow. He came and he lived the sinless life that I can't live. And last I checked, you can't live either. And so he died on the cross as an innocent substitute in our place to make payment for our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. He calls on you to respond, in him, respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today, man. I'd love to be helpful to you. I've got to jump in a giant bathtub here in a second, but we can talk after I'm dried off. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, 
It's a time that we give people space to respond, to, to translate head and heart stuff into action stuff. But then after that, we'll get to watch the best story ever be told yet again. So whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the picture of baptism. Thank you that you've given us this thing that's personal but not private. That's grand declaration but also gentle reminder. Father, for those that you have saved, thank you for saving us. We can add nothing to your effort. You've never needed anything from us or wanted anything from us other than to give us yourself in reconciled relationship. And no spiritual knob turning has ever changed that. Father, thank you for these four that are coming today to be baptized solidify the story in their own heart. Thank you for what you've already done as we tell the story. Help us as a church walk faithfully beside them, love them well, serve them well, help them grow in all the things that you've called good churches to do. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see? Would you change someone's position before you this morning? Call them home. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.